In this episode, I'm once again joined by Alejandro Chaul, PhD, to discuss his latest book, Tibetan Yoga, Magical Movements of Body, Breath and Mind, by Wisdom Publications. Alejandro tells the story of the creation of this book, describes its textual sources, and explains his decision not to include images of the sacred movements. Alejandro reveals the different uses of Tibetan yoga, including physical healing, clearing of obstacles, enhancing meditation, and spiritual advancement. Alejandro also discusses personality typologies, the flavor of Dzogchen awakening, the importance of the full lotus posture, and compares Buddhist tumo techniques to the inner heat methods of the Iceman Wim Hof. So without further ado, Alejandro Chaul, PhD. Alejandro Chaul, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Good to see you. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking to you again. And uh, first of all, let me say congratulations on your new book, Tibetan Yoga, Magical Movements of Body, Breath and Mind, published very recently, actually, uh, November 23rd, 2021 by Wisdom Press. Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited. I it's it's uh, as many books of many writers. Uh, it's uh, it's something that takes a long time, and and now that it's out, it feels like yes, I'm really happy that it's out. And in our last episode um, together, which I will of course link in the show notes, we went in detail through your biography and uh, through your practice journey, and uh, much of which contributes to this book. In fact, this book sort of draws together. Uh, decades of both academic work, but also uh, work with the practice lineage itself. So you're drawing from your PhD, which you completed at Rice University, you're drawing from all your excursions to India, and your studies with uh, the masters um, that you've been associated with in your career. And it's very interesting. Uh, we were talking earlier, uh, just before we started recording about uh, the uniqueness of this book, Tibetan Yoga, it's not like other books uh, on Trilkor or other books on sort of say movement practices. It's not picture heavy, for instance. It's very textually sourced. The appendix at the end, uh, you include two translations and you include the full Tibetan uh, text as well as the English translation, which is quite unusual indeed. So there's a lot of interesting choices you made uh, in this book, which I think make it quite unique. Could you talk a little bit about the story of this book, how it came to be and what influenced uh, these particular choices. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, so, as 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 we spoke last time, you know, in my previous book, it was more opening Tibetan yoga for people that didn't know about Tibetan yoga, and it was uh, from it was textual, and yet it was more. Uh, I didn't put the Tibetan text, but I put some photos and. Uh, it was something that we condensed with my teacher, Tenzi Wonder Rinpoche, and to make more available. So it is a practice that um, is almost for everyone, uh, that everyone can enjoy. And we've been doing research at MD Anderson, which is a cancer center here in Houston with it. And we were doing it with these practices too. So, so first, textually, there are two different texts. One is the one on the Atri, on the instructions of the A. This one is from the Shangshun Inju, the oral transmission or oral transmission of Shangshun. Um, but also, uh, when I started learning these practices, this was the one that I learned first. And actually, this was the one that Tenzi Wonder and Pache asked me to teach first. 
but also it was more complex. And so at some point after probably teaching this for um, almost a decade, actually eight years maybe, from 95 to 2007, um, Rinpoche, as he was teaching on the Trumo of the Atri, and it mentioned about the, the Trumkor, he said, oh, you've been trained in this too, right? And I said, yes. And he said, why don't we do something with this, but make it more accessible? And that's how that book um, it actually ended up coming out. And this is a practice, that's what we've been doing also at Ligbincha International and in the various centers around the world on, on that. Now, this was, as, as you said, it was also part of my dissertation. So it was left there as this thing that only a few people read because people feel it's too dense and, and it's true. Um, and so what I wanted to do is how can we bring this? Because a lot of people wanted to, to know more about it. How can we bring it in a way that it's more accessible and at the same time, not necessarily lose some of the values that we have in academia or for the, those of us who are not necessarily academic, but are in Tibetan traditions or any yogi traditions. And we wanna, what is the source? How do I know the, you know, where is this coming from? And so with all that together, and um, I feel incredibly blessed uh, that I've been both uh, trained in the oral tradition, meaning that I've been trained with teachers, uh, live teachers that uh, taught me on these practices. And so, and I practice them daily. And at the same time, um, reading, being able to read the text and being taught in the textual tradition. And so for me is these teachers are so alive both the ones that are actually alive and those who have passed away even centuries ago. And so what I wanted to do is something that I did a little bit in my dissertation, but I wanted to see how do we bring it to a broader public and yet not lose this beautiful essence that I feel it's like nectar, you know, dutsi, you know, amrita, which is this lineage that is very much alive. And so that's what I tried to do by bringing the masters already from the cover and the back cover. And then inside, you know, all the lineage masters, each one with each of the Tsakli, you know, all the way to, you know, Lopuntenzing Nandak, who's, you know, undoubtedly the main teacher still alive in this tradition and with to whom I, I um, dedicate this book. He was crucial in all my years of practice. Um, and so, and as you can see in the background, or maybe you can't see, but in that tanka under Tapiritsa, that is Lopontenzi Namdak. And that's a tanka that I got right before COVID in 90, for his 95th birthday. Two days ago was his 97th birthday. And so I wanted to bring this alive so that people can understand what is this tradition? What is Tibetan yoga? And how can you bring it into your practice uh, if you are a Tibetan practitioner or Tibetan meditation or Tibetan yoga practitioner, but also if you're not, what are different ways that this can support uh, your practice, your spiritual uh, growth? 
Yeah, it's, I think it's a it's definitely a must-have for people who are interested in the subject. There are three main source texts that you you draw from, and perhaps you can say something about that. And each of them has sets, different sets of movements with uh, with very uh, cool names, and they have certain uh, effects. Some are more for clearing away obstacles, uh, some um, for other purposes, many diverse purposes, and really quite interesting to see it laid out there, compiled from these three different sources and explained in that way. One thing that you mentioned when we were talking earlier was that there are no uh, sort of follow along pictures. When one thinks of a, a physical yoga book or a book describing movements, one always expects uh, to see some line drawings or photographs of somebody doing them. And they're not very helpful because they are still still shots. It doesn't necessarily say that much very often. But you opted not to do that, and that was a deliberate choice. I'm curious about that, uh, the, the reasoning behind that choice. So let me let me answer both questions. So first, I think you're giving me too much credit uh, for all the sources, because really, um, even though you're right that there are three sources, it's really a root text and commentaries. So I didn't put together the things. I basically, knowing these three sources and having read them and practicing, I'm seeing some of the differences between them, particularly the root text itself, which is this one, which is from the Shanshu Ninju text, uh, which is a compilation of, it's almost like an encyclopedia of of all these oral tradition, text oral, and I'll talk about oral and oral. Um, um, and then the commentary by Chartres and Pache, which is 19th century. So this was 11th century, this is 19th century. And so what happens is, as, as you know, as, as, as things evolve, Chartres Tashi Johnson, who wrote it in the 20th century or 19th, 20th century, you know, he brought in all from the root text all the way to his day, all what his teachers had taught him. And, um, and so he, you know, he's a, an incredible, he was an incredible master who, uh, when he passed away, took a rainbow body. And so uh, his descriptions are lovely in many other texts as well. So I chose this text, which is the one that I learned with from my teachers. And, um, and so but I also wanted, because I had done that in my dissertation, to show what are some of the differences. Why did Shardsa make some of these choices? Um, and I thought it was useful for me when I was both learning and as I teach. And so I thought that for the readers and the practitioners, it would be useful to have that. Now, in terms of photos and, 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 or, or pictures or line drawings, I went through so many texts. There are some. Um, some of these uh, pictures that are existent, uh, not of all the movements, I have taken photos, um, both of, you know, uh, some people have taken photos of me doing them, of other people. Um, and we discussed this back and forth, and but then it would be a very different book. Um, and partly, as you said, you know, even if you have photos, I mean, because these are movements, in order to really have the whole aspect, you would have to have multiple photos or multiple drawings, and it still doesn't capture it. And furthermore, you could run into problems if you think that you can grab a book like this and try and do them. And I don't want people to get into problems. And, and this is part of why, in general, uh, these books are... Like you can read them and get 
interested. And then you go and find a teacher. Who's teaching this in my area? Or where can I go to learn? And then I learn them. And then, you know, um, we can see about how this supports your practice. Once you know the movements, then yes, you can do. And then maybe you take a, you know, we have a couple of photos that might now make more sense. And so that's why we, we chose of not going in, in that direction. And yet what we have is both the tra translation per se, the Tibetan and the translation that I wanna uh, thank Kurt Koitzer uh, for um, re-translating uh, with me this time. Um, I had translated in its original in 2006 for my dissertation, but I, I felt it needed an update and, and uh, I worked with Kurt and it was wonderful. And so, but also I have a chapter where we go over every movement. And that's where I also tell the reader, well, you know, this one, it's said in this way in the root text, but Shartza does this, and this is how I do it. And this is why, and this is why I feel it's comfortable. I even put things like, oh, this one is difficult, so be careful, you know. And so I bring more of, uh, of my own experience with it. So sometimes I say that this book was actually more than half written on my mat um, and then uh, bringing that back to the computer. Yeah. Very cool. Well, maybe we could zoom out a little. In the last interview, you disambiguated a few terms. We looked at what is the difference between between Talung Trulkor and uh, say Kumye and uh, other sorts of uh, physical uh, yogic systems uh, or physical systems of involving some sort of movement or external therapy in the Tibetan system. Sometimes these words um, benefit from some disambiguation. And here actually in this book, you uh, explain that Talung Trulkor itself appears in many different practice systems in Tibet. It's not just used for spiritual means. It's not just used for, for Tumo, for example, which I think is perhaps uh, a very famous use in, in at least uh, in widespread awareness. It's also used for medical and psychological uh, or emotional uh, uh, rem as remedies. And you talk uh, quite a bit about that. I'm wondering if you could describe some of these different contexts that we see Trukor appear in um, and the, the various ways in which it's applied. Yeah, so, you know, as uh, another of my teachers, you know, the um, Menri um, Lopon Tilanima, you know, he, he was saying how, you know, in ancient times, you and even in many places in Asia still today, you're not close to health centers, you're certainly not close to hospitals. And so yogis in their caves, as they are practicing, you know, human beings, they have uh, different uh, imbalances, uh, right? As we call them in, in Tibetan medicine. Um, and so basically they could be physical, what we call illness or disease and, and the same with mental and emotional. And so they actually, by doing these practices, they figured that this was helpful. And so it was both helpful for those ailments uh, or illnesses and that then they could meditate better. And so it's always thought, even, even as they were done to support um, illnesses, um, it's always with the intention that let's be healthy so we can practice. 
right? So the intention of enlightenment in a way is always there, right? Because um, at least in these traditions, that's why you practice. Um, now, as a secondary benefit, um, if you would, a positive side effect, you can get these incredible um, benefits at the at the levels that you mentioned in in the physical. You know, you can improve physically, emotionally, mentally, as well as spiritually. And so, uh, but for them, they don't necessarily separate them so much. They do them together. Now, the text does say, for example, you know, this particular movement, you know, as you know, you do the duck drinking water, you know, you open, you open your heart. And as you open your heart, you connect to the element of space. And as you element the space, you reduce or you kind of sometimes they say close that channel of anger. And so that supports that openness of space and of love. So, so there are these ways in which the text talks about ways of understanding of illnesses related more within the Tibetan medical system, which is the five elements and the three humors or Nepa. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that these movements could be applied remedially? Uh, say you have some sort of illness, you're on retreat up in the mountains and so on. You have some sort of illness, a particular condition is coming, or maybe a psychological disturbance. Can you apply them like a remedy or a medicine? Or is the sense that practicing these broadly will maintain or, or just generally cover, cover all your health bases, uh, or, or perhaps not, neither of the above? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And I think a, a little bit of both, and I'm actually doing, uh, a weekend with uh, Mempa Punzawamo, who's, uh, I don't know if you know Mempa, I think you do. She's also the uh, the niece of Namkai Norbrimche and the director of the Changsheng Institute. And we're doing a, a weekend in February um, on the five elements in Tibetan medicine and Tibetan yoga. And, and really um, there is a sense of, and, and she would say, you know, sometimes for my patients, I would tell them, uh, for this, why don't you practice this particular movement or this particular practice? Or she would say, go to this person to learn this. So there is that. And as, as you know, we use them specifically for uh, protocols in MD Anderson, in a cancer center. And actually, I mentioned uh, that in the, in the book as well. Um, and at the same time, the way that they were thought um, is that these are practices that are, in a way, what we would call, they don't have necessarily this term of prevention, um, but, but it is uh, basically maintaining health and well-being. Um, and that's why I, I, I called that my last book. You know, it, it is for health and well-being. So if you practice this, I mean, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get any illness, but it means that your whole system, it, it's it's... In, in, in one of the, the terminologies that they use, your whole machinery is well-oiled, right? And that's, that's what, what happens because the machinery is the whole body. The oil is the breath that is guided by the mind. And so when you do that all together, in a way, your whole system uh, with each of these movements gets almost rebooted, you know? And one of the beauties is that each movement in a way it's it's 
it's a movement in itself, and yet it belongs to this other huge system, right? And so with each one, you start with an inhalation and bringing it into your central channel, connecting to your pervasive breath, doing the movement, which allows you to clear obstacles of different areas. And then at the end, as you shake, you're shaking, feeling that you're steering from the depth of samsara. So you're not just your stuff, but you are thinking of your stuff, is there's anything specific, but also of everyone else. And then you exhale through the nose, releasing everything. And before exhaling, you continue to exhaling with this with the sounds of hum, peh. And so you release it all. And the text says, and now as you stay, you feel that now all beings are luminous, enlightened beings because they're being released, freed from all their obstacles, at least for a moment. And you sit and enjoy that. And that sitting part is very important in this true course. So even though a lot of people focus on the movements, is the sitting between movements that is also important, or sometimes the Tibetans practice it, which is, you know, a few movements and then sitting. But the sitting is crucial. I think that's, that is really, really important. And I, as I mentioned there, I think there, there's something that is also interesting uh, for me, it's been really, really interesting, both at the practice level as well as the academic level. And this is that, you know, when many of us practiced in, in this yoga world, a lot of times we think of the Kundalini awakening, right? And this aspect of this energy. And, and this is present here because, you know, all of the movements are done focusing on the central channel. But yet, it's not so much this movement, although, as I say, this exists, it's more, this. it's a pervasive, it's kind of a mandalic, uh, you know, coming from mandala, from Gilcord, center and periphery. This, each one, you're coming into the center, doing what you need to do, expanding back to the periphery and clearing your whole mandala, you know, very much as there's a Tibetan way of, uh, asking uh, in an honorific way, how are you doing? You know, that usually is, right? How, how is your health or how is your body doing? Um, um, and there's another way, which is more like, you know, kuchil seltang. So how is your mandala, you know, is your mandala clear, right? And so this sense of clearing your mandala with every, uh, every movement, um, it's a beautiful way of, reminding us that of our natural state of mind. And so that's for me, uh, what got me uh, into it almost three decades ago and what keeps me uh, into it every morning and every day. Um, so um, that's what I love about this. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting indeed. I'd like to ask you a little bit actually about what it is that so interested you about these movements for, as a practitioner for, for all this time. Uh, we learned, of course, in the previous episode that you've done many, many practices and you've done long nundro of uh, Dujom Teresar and all sorts of things. Um, that uh, So you have expo had exposure to many different practices and this seems to be 
uh, one that you you has been a mainstay uh, for you, cent centerpiece perhaps, or, or at least uh, very close to the center. But before we do, another important use, uh, perhaps the main use of these movements that you write about in the book is this idea of gexel, this word gexel. And to quote your book here, uh, you write, the purpose of clearing obstacles, which is this gexel, is to enhance the meditative state because magical movement unblocks and opens the flow of the winds. Magical movement serves as a gateway to a more clear, open, and stable experience of abiding in the natural state of mind. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Gexel. Yeah, and I, um, there's two terms there, right? So it's the Gexel, or clearing the get, right? Clearing uh, the obstacles, which could be uh, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. Um, and there's the enhancing the meditation that we call Bogdan, right? So these are two very, very important terms, uh, not only in this text, uh, but in general, uh, because what you're doing is, I mean, basically it's assessing where you are, right? So if when I'm sitting, I'm going to start a practice, and I'm trying to, you know, bring my connection to my teachers, maybe Tapiri, visualize Tapiritsa as a union of all enlightened beings. And I'm about to start and I, I feel that I have a lot of stuff going on, a lot of geek. I love the word geek, you know, particularly if we can sell what away, right? Is I know that I really need to do more in that, right? And so I ask, for support from all my teachers and the lineage. And when I do the practices, I do it with this intention of how can I clear my inner mandala? How can I clear my body, my energy, my mind, right? My, and so I'm doing them and each time, and what happens is slowly each time I'm touching back into that meditative state. And maybe as I'm sitting in my meditative state, all my clutter comes back. And so I do it again. And as I sit up, again, a little more unclutters. And so slowly I'm enhancing that meditative state that it's always been there, but it's cluttered. And so I'm able to unclutter it with every movement. And um, there's other times you know, uh, very uh, uncommon for me, but I know for others might be more common, which, you know, they might sit and they might be already in their natural state of mind. And if that is the case, then you can use this almost as a, you know, uh, you know, prevention from being cluttered, right? So you do it and then it allows you to stay longer and longer. And so in a way, you know that's that's what you're doing, and and just as a, I think I mentioned this in my in my in the last interview you did of me, um, that when I was learning these in Trita Norbutsa in Nepal, um, we would practice them with the meditation group in the morning and the evening, and the way that we were using them was actually we were you know we start you know our meditation session we did some prayers as we always do to start. And then we try and just stay in our natural state of mind. What Lopantezinamda was teaching on treacher, right? On this kind of um, 
cutting through the conceptual thought. And so just trying to stay there. And as for many, you know, uh, uh, as you try and stay there, your freshness diminishes. Either you go more into agitation or dullness. And so midway through the practice, the uh, at that time, Kemponima Wanjel would be guiding that practice. He would, you know, stand up or some somewhere sitting, but he would do a set of this trunkor. And it would be like a reset button, right? You know, we would do five or six, depending on the set that we were doing. And then, then you sit again. And basically now you kind of, uh, you know, remove some of your rustiness, remove some of your clutters, and now you're ready to stay with more clarity. And so it supports you in that. And so practicing them in that way for me has been so helpful, which is why, as I mentioned last time, when I was doing my nondro, um, I would do them at the end of every nondro, you know, because I, whether I was doing prostrations, whether I was doing mandala offering, whatever I was doing at the end, I was asked to stay, right? And so when I was staying, maybe I couldn't stay very long. And so I would use this reboot and then able to stay a little longer. And so for me, it has been an incredible practice from then and still important every day of my life. Hmm. I'm wondering uh, two things, really. First of all, you mentioned Tibetan, the Tibetan medical system. And um, I believe, you'll correct me, I think, if I'm wrong, that it is suggested that there are sort of, people might have different types, typologies related to the three humors, or maybe some combinations uh, of those humors and so on or the three nepas, as you, as, you, as you said. And also that sometimes different practices are, broadly speaking, um, suggested for them. I'm wondering if you've noticed uh, if, a, if there's a type of person uh, that seems to gravitate to, the, to these, or if different people seem to get different things out of them. You've been teaching there for, for such a long time. I'm sure you've seen a lot of variety there. And also, I'm curious about the outcome. And once again, I might be thinking of this in the wrong way, but what often hears this idea, well, awakening can have different sorts of flavors, a Rinzai flavor. One often hears about that, right? The Rinzai flavor, uh, dynamic uh, in that kind of Rinzai way, embodied, or the Dzogchen, open, etc., etc. These sorts of different kinds of flavors that um, different methods uh, can bring out as people mature in their practice. I'm wondering if the use of these sorts of techniques, if you've noticed uh, it adds any sort of particular flavor or valence to the result, resultant awakening. So really, it's to both ends. What sort of people seem to gravitate towards it? And do people get different things out of it? And also, in yeah. terms of the outcome of those that have matured in this sort of a practice, are there things that one might notice and, and learn to observe? So first of all, I just want to make sure I'm not a Tibetan doctor. So what I, I, I've, 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 I've learned uh, but I, you know, that's not my my specialty. However, we, I have worked and I still work, as I was mentioning, with Tibetan doctors. And so one of the things that usually these kind of exercises in general are actually begin people, you know, uh, what we call phlegm uh, imbalance. Um, uh, it's we want to have more movement. 
uh, I am more began. And so, you know, for me, that might be one of the ways why I was drawn to this. Um, but, um, but also I noticed, for example, um, some I had, uh, I mean, uh, many, but I remember one very early on, uh, someone who was uh, uh, also uh, in school at UVA with me. And, um, and he was saying how he doing these practices at night, he could not sleep. Now he was much more um, a lung person, you know, a windy person. And so, so yes, so for different people, uh, it is slightly uh, different and how they can use it. However, they are, they are as a practice, they're recommended to all three, um, but then you have to see, it's not so much, I mean, you could think of some of the movements more for ones and for others, but also how you practice. So for example, for some people, it's very useful to do one movement and sit and stay and really enjoy that experience. For other people, they want to go pa 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 pa, do a few and then stay. For some people, the staying is the problem. So they wanna keep on doing to avoid the staying. And so, you know, you have to, to see. So when, when I, you know, when I teach and in, in, particularly in the trainings, what ends up happening, like probably in every training, there's an attrition, right? And so, you know, you start with a lot of people and then at the end, maybe there's 10, 15 people, right? And so then you can really go clear, okay, so let's see what's going on. And, you know, in a way, being able to um, help them in, in their practice. And usually in the trainings, we do it all along, but the smaller the group, the more interaction you can have in that. Um, and so I think in that way, um, Truncor can be used uh, uh, specifically, and then you can say, okay, I find that these particular sets are helpful for me. And then um, that would be one way of saying, okay, that is good. On the other hand, you may not want to totally forget the others and get rusty on that. So maybe still do them or is it that I'm not doing them? because there's something that I don't want to look into or I'm not ready to, you know, now that I'm at the Jung Center, kind of my shadow, you know? And so, uh, so I think it's important to, to see that. And what I love when we are in a group, you know, part of the way I teach and my teachers teach, how I learn from them is that there's opportunities, of course, for people sharing. And in those sharings, we all learn from each other. Not everyone just learns from the teacher. And so I think that part, it's kind of another aspect of the mandala itself. And, 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 and so I think that's, that's really important. Did I answer both questions or did I miss part of it? The second question was this idea, and I don't know, you may not agree with it, that um, different methods can sometimes sort of flavor or valence the way that mm. awakening uh, or whatever we might say, uh, maturing of practice expresses in a person. We say, oh, the Rinzai people, they have this kind of a flavor or the Togchen people tend to have this sort of a flavor. Maybe, maybe that's a little simplistic, but one does often hear that. So I was curious if you'd notice 
um, in the masters that you've seen or maturing practitioners that you've seen, and there's a lot, there's a lot of those. You've had contact with a lot of those. Is there something that the Talon Troll Corps is giving them that that's unique that we might we might learn to notice? You know, it's it's hard to say. I you know, in general, I mean, what's interesting is um, that these all these Trungpa these are all Dzogchen texts. So the Shangshu Ninju, the Atri, these are all Dzogchen texts. Um, and if you notice, th this is the last chapter. Actually, the letter A or A is the same, which is the same as here. That is the same as here. As you can see, I'm quite uh, uh, I need of A. I'm very connected. That's a, a, an important uh, symbol for me. Um, is being that sense of open and aware. And so Dzogchen practices, um, whether they are more physical like the, the Tsalun Trungkor or whether they are less physical, it is about being in this just open awareness, right? Um, so now in terms of flavor, um, at least from my experience, um, the flavor in general, it is this open awareness, but then it's what's happening around that you're able to let come and go, how that flavors. But the other part is, so for example, if I'm doing a practice with chama, which in, in our tradition is this golden, luminous, female uh, wisdom and loving kindness deity that is, uh, you know, when I practice, for example, and I like to practice her uh, wisdom with um, with my golden mandala, uh, mala, right? And so it's like, I feel, even if I, you know, if I ever get to that state of mind, it has a flavor of this golden chama light. So, so sometimes, um, uh, you know, the practice itself has some way of, of, I don't want to use the word tainting because it's more coloring, I think that's, or, or flavoring uh, the experience. And so in a way, if you think of, you know, top and shut up of method and wisdom, you know, they're together and they do provide, you, you could be at that state and yet, they could be flavors. And that's why all the different deities, right, that we have in Bern and Buddhism, right? Whether, you know, if it's Manjushri, if it's Tara, if it's Avalokiteshvara, you know, each one has their quality. And so you could be in that state of mind, but if you were practicing through that wisdom part, maybe that's more your experience. If you're practicing through the loving kindness, maybe that's more your experience. Does that make sense? That's very fascinating indeed. I had a, I had a couple of specific questions for you um, about some of the points in the text. In the text, you mention Yung Drung, the cross-legged posture of Yung, Yung Drung, and you're talking there also about full lotus and this sort of thing. And I'm curious about that. How important is the full lotus? What are its unique benefits or specific benefits? And I'm also interested in, in how you've seen people work to achieving that. If it's, it seems to be emphasized in the text there, I'm sure you've seen many people attempt to acquire that posture. 
Oh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. You know, I think, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, like I would, at the beginning, I would always thrive to that. And one of the things that it's interesting is that um, in, at least in the way I learned, we had in the monastery, you know, the, 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 the floor was cement. We didn't, you know, there was no stretchings of any kind. It was like, you know, getting to the lotus, you know, and, um, and then, you know, coming back to the West and, and, you know, doing, you know, seeing people in the yoga, in the more Indian-based yoga community, having all these ways, I was like, wow, that is fascinating. Um, so in the traditions, what I've seen is that it's mentioned, but it's not always done. And it's, it's fine if you don't. Now, for example, uh, because of, you know, I also have, I, I don't think I, I mentioned this last time, but I have kind of a Scottish connection because I, I learned English in St. Andrew's Scott School. And so I, that meant that I play rugby. And so now that I'm older, I, all those rugby injuries are popping up. So I have a bad knee now that I cannot do full Lotus. And, you know, I still do the practice and I, uh, you know, do it as, as well, you know, again, as I always emphasized, um, the movement is just a way of supporting the energy, right? And so, for, so if some people cannot do a specific movement, whether it's a yundrung or any other movement, um, it's fine. You do what you can because you're bringing that energy in that, in that way. Um, actually, recently when I presented the book at Tibet House, um, uh, Bob Thurman, uh, uh, did a, a wonderful video and explanation on, on the book. And he said, you know, oh, some of these movements are impossible, you know. Uh, but again, it's not about the doing them. It's like how you bring yourself into those positions. So I always say it's not about, let's say, the yundrum, the, the full. It's about bringing towards that in whatever your body, your capacity allows you to. Um, and sometimes what happens, again, you know, depending on our age and our different, you know, we can either get there or at least strive to. Now, as, and this I say a lot to the people who are trained to eventually become instructors and teachers, is it's important to mention that even if you are not able to do it, that you say that that's how it should be done. Right, uh, because otherwise, then okay, this teacher didn't do this, that teacher didn't do, and so it starts saying, "Well, wait, when I saw you doing this video, you didn't do it like the book. Well, do it like the book because that's my fault or my limitation." And so it's important, I think, as teachers also to say we have limitations, but I think it's important to mention them so they know this how to do it. And that's another advantage of having the book and having the translation and saying, hey, you know, again, it doesn't mean that we don't make errors in the translations, but at least that you can point to a source. Yeah. Uh, that's very interesting indeed. Uh, there are a lot of other uh, cool details in the book. You talk about the breath holds and the three levels of breath hold. And you talk about these syllables that you demonstrated earlier, the ha and the pe 
and how they're used. Very cool, actually. And one does get the the sense of a very dynamic practice. It's very dynamic. Um, it's, uh, you know, and again, uh, for example, when I, I used it for people with cancer, I did the whole first set, which you could do all sitting down. So you don't have to stand up and, you know, there are ways, and I, I, I mentioned this in here, and I also mentioned in my previous book, how to do the, the concluding movement in a sitting way. So there are ways that you can regulate in a way how you practice and how, what are the aspects that you're, you're enhancing uh, more the meditative part or you're clearing more your obstacles or how you do them towards those goals. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, cool aspects that I just had to ask you about was Sharza Tashi Geltsen's 100-day program. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. I expect you've undertaken that. Have, have you undertaken that that 100-day program? Um, can, can you talk a bit about it? And if you if you did it, what, what your experience was with that? That's, that's a very uh, fascinating part of the book. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mentioned some of, of this story in, in my other book as well, because um, so um, my Tenzin Wonder Rinpoche asked me to, to go and, and, and learn further with His Holiness Lumto Tempanima, who was the abbot of Menri, who now has passed away, and to whom I dedicated my previous book. Um, and um, when I called him, you know, I mean, I've known him, for, uh, I knew him for a while. And so I, I called him and I said, I, I want to go there. And he said, okay, but you have to come for the 100 days. Otherwise, you can't come. And at that time, um, um, my uh, daughter, my, so I had a son, and I, then uh, my daughter, uh, my youngest, uh, was being born. And, um, and so my wife said, no way that you're going for, for 100 days. And so, so we finally negotiated 60 days. And so I called his holiness and I said, I'm sorry, um, uh, Rinpoche, I, I, I just cannot do it. I, I can only do 60 days. And he responded, when are you coming? And so I, I, so I did it in, in a reduced way. I kind of, I doubled up. Um, and, and, and one thing that was really funny um, um, uh, that we came up recently in a dialogue that we did also with Rinpoche and with Wim Hof, and, which is the, the, the aspect of cold. You know, because as you said, these practices are many times paired with, with Tumo. And, and, and what you were saying about this kind of three levels is three levels of holding, right? Holding like a basket, then holding like a vase, and then holding like, a, like you know, we say like a mass of fire, right? You know, and so that's what you do also when you train in the Tumo. And, and His Holiness, when when I arrived there, he put me in this room and, and halfway through my training, he said, by the way, I, want, I wanted to make sure that you know, I gave you that room because it's cold. I know there's other nicer rooms, but I want, you know, I said, no, no, that's, that is fine. And so uh, partly you practice in, in the cold, it supports you bringing part of that, that heat into it. And the Trunkor does that. The Trunkor heats you up. Um, I sometimes half jokingly call it the inner Bikram, right? Because you don't have to put the outside temperature up, you put your inner temperature up. And then what that allows you is for your inner, for the channels and for your body to be more 
pliable so you can use these movements to support how the breath moves in you and how to support the state of mind. You mentioned Wim Hof there, and I know I saw that dialogue actually you had with um, Wim Hof and Tenzin Wangyo Rinpoche, your uh, teacher and colleague. I'm wondering about that. What, what, ref what reflections did you have on that dialogue? Wim Hof, of course, is famous for his sort of version of inner heat practice or a kind of inner heat practice that he does with uh, pranayama and also arguably kind of Talung Trilkor in a way. Uh, there are there are movements that he does. Of course, it's not traditional Talung Trilkor, but what were your reflections um, after that dialogue? Yeah, and, and also in that dialogue, it was uh, my good friend and researcher, Elisa Eppel. And, um, you know, so I... I think it was interesting. I uh, I think people, I don't know that he calls it Tumo, although I've heard people call what he does as Tumo. And I think the, you know, when, and I've tried the technique and I've done it and I actually been uh, in in the uh, ice bath after doing it. And, and I, I like it. I think it's, it's fun. Um, but it's not Tumo. It's not, at least it's not the Tumo I've learned. Uh, the practice is very different, uh, although both do bring heat. Um, but Tumo, um, the whole point of Tumo, heat is a secondary benefit. Um, it's really the, as you focus, and it's not just the focusing, it's focusing and allowing, right? Because sometimes what I find in my own practice is that when I was trying and focus and focus and focus and focus and heat didn't come. I was tight. The moment I'm able to focus, but also relax, that's when heat arises. So it's not about, in this practice, it's not about heat. Um, but in the Wim Hof, yes, because it has other, it's other goals. And, um, and, and, you know, I, I think it was, it was, it was great. And I was good to see, you know, that Elisa, Dr. Appel is doing that research and we'll see when, when she comes out with the findings. But I, I, I find it that it's useful. I've been teaching a class at Rice that, um, on, that includes that because it's, uh, you probably read the book. I, I don't know if we mentioned it last time, James Nestor's book, Breath. And so, um, People are interested in that, and I think it's good for people to, to know about that technique. And again, there's references too, but in my experience, it's the, the coincidences or the convergences with TUMO is more about the outcome of heat than the practice itself. Um, and the movements, I don't think uh, they're from Salantrum. What I meant when I referred to Talon Trokor was they almost function as a sort of pseudo Talon Trokor. Uh, there's breathing, but not like, not like we know it, Jim. And there's uh, what I'm, that's a Star Trek reference, meaning there's breathing, but not like in in the in the in, in Tumo. There's movement, but not quite like Talon Trokor. Very cool indeed, and he's a great character. Um, he's a great character, and I think you know, I think one thing it's that as he mentions it, it's easy. You know, it's 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 accessible to everyone who wants to do it, and so you know, if if that's something that interests you, you know, by all means, you know, I mean, I uh, actually, uh, as I said, I I tried it here with one of his students, and I even took my son, and we were both in in the uh, ice bath, and uh, we had a lot of fun. 
Well, it's been a fascinating conversation, Alejandro. Thank you so much. I'm wondering to end, you know, you mentioned that this is this practice has been such a passion of yours, both in terms of your personal religious practice life and also in, in terms of your of your academic interest. I'm wondering if perhaps an anecdote comes to mind or two of your experience with this practice in terms of your own personal practice, in terms of your own meditational journey. So, so first, I think that, um, I mean, as I said, I have many. One is, you know, when I was training and really trying hard, um, the what I was looking for in that case, kind of the heat of the tumor and that then would support my practice um, didn't, didn't arise until I was able to loosen up a little bit. So, so sometimes it's not about, it's about being able to find, you know, that, that way that allows you to be focused and also relaxed. So, so in a way, be playful. And I like this word playful as we do the practice. And I don't mean it I, I mean it in a supportive way, not in a pejorative way at all. Um, um, so even though I do mention um, that one of my teachers would say that if we're just doing the movements, it is like children playing, but really this is much more. And that's why the magical movement for me, you know, so some of anecdotes, you know, when I, when I started practicing this, um, it was really uh, such a shift um, in my practice. I I remember when I learned the Mintrita Norwitze and I came back to Argentina where I'm originally from and I was practicing with my Nondro and then came to the US and told Tenzin Wander Rinpoche, this is what I've learned. And I told him, you know, it just changed my practice. And, and he saw that and he said, let's, this is so great, you know, that let's see how we can bring it to others. And so, um, so that, that was impressive for me, how this really physical practice helped me in my sitting and my kind of being able to um, be in that open awareness. Um, you know, along the way, uh, anecdotes that come to mind, um, one, actually, this one is both practitioner, but teaching. So when Rinpoche asked me to start teaching it, um, I was in Virginia. And, um, and I taught it in the way I, I had been taught in three days, teach the whole thing. So we did it on a weekend. And at the end, people would say, stop, you know. And what I realized, too, is that when I asked these students, you know, maybe a week, a month later, so how's your practice? They said, I'm not practicing. I said, why? I don't know where to start. I said, what about the beginning, right? But I think one of the things I've learned, um, both from my teachers and from my own experiences, what are the, what's the dosage, right? How can we teach in a way that that makes sense to who's learning and also um, noticing that uh, sometimes people just want to learn more of the movements, but they're not settling with them. And so I've had experiences where um, people were just wanting to do the movements, but they're, 
they realize later they're not practicing because they're not even practicing the first ones. So from my from my own experience too, you know, even though I learned it all together in that way, it took me a long time to process it, to sit with it, to practice them. And so um, for me, yeah, I don't know if aneg more anecdotes more than um, how it really uh, changed my life. I, I almost, maybe I got addicted. You know, I almost, if I don't do Trung Core at least a little bit every day, it feels like weird. So I have to find at least a moment to do one set. Uh, but um, it's, yeah, it's a, uh, for me, it's a, it's a very, very uh, special practice. Um, yeah, and uh, it's been, it's been really beautiful how uh, people in the the Tibetans, uh, both in, in Menri Monastery and Tritarno would say in, in the communities in general have been embraced that because if you look, and I think I mentioned this a little bit, most people in the monasteries are not trained in these. And so, but they are very appreciative when they see, you know, an Inji, a Westerner like me practicing and and the the kindness and support I, I I felt, and I every time I go to the monasteries and and they're there to support, um, it's great. But I I do also one anecdote is that, you know, with Lopun Tenzin Namdak, every year I would see him, whether it was in the States or in Nepal or in France, I would always ask him questions. So once I finished the dissertation, I remember I went to France and. Um, I was with him and I said, no questions. I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna sit here and enjoy being with you. I don't have any questions. And we just, you know, had uh, tea and enjoyed and stories and talked and, and that was uh, very beautiful. Um, and just, uh, so for me, again, coming back being in the presence of these teachers is is wonderful. So I wanted to, you know, uh, as I dedicated this book to to Rinpoche, I actually want to read this because it's very short, and I think it's 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 very important for me um, that I say, you know, uh, as I, you know, through him I entered the Bund teachings in '91, and since then it he has been a constant support in my spiritual path. When I am in difficulties, I hear his words telling me, don't forget we're in samsara. And as I visualize him with his wonderful smile, those difficulties and obstacles seem to dissolve like a snowflake in the ocean. And when that is not enough, I practice these magical movements. So these are, you know, uh, for me, that's how this comes together through the blessings of, of, you know, the time uh, and all the wisdom that uh, these teachers uh, share and then uh, um, the time sitting and jumping and struggling through my own things and, and being able to then putting it all together and then of course always dedicating the practice for the benefit of all.
That's Tibetan Yoga, Magical Movements of Body, Breath and Mind, available now, published by Wisdom Publications. Alejandro Chow, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. Always good to see you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.